Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and I am doing, I guess this is going to be a short this month. My script looks kind of long, but we'll see how long it takes. I'm going to be talking a lot about IPA symbols, and I'm going to try to give the sound, and if I think that's not clear, maybe I will also say what the IPA symbol I'm talking about is, uh, just to get both of those. And um, you will be able to see my original script. I may actually put that on the Conlangery site itself rather than at the Conlang Sources Wiki, just so that's easily accessible because that might be important for people to understand this. So um, if you're having trouble following symbols, then do this. But uh, I wanted to, this is something I've talked about before. So there is a tendency in the conlanging community to hew toward more narrow, standardized definitions of terms than among linguists. Uh, there have been a few times when someone has criticized me on the on a use of a term that I defined in the text where they felt another term fit. This is most obvious in morphology, which is pretty notorious for having different traditions among different languages for naming different categories or morphs, but it extends to other places as well. I understand the impulse of conlangers to hew to standardized systems of terminology. Uh, conlangers, by our nature, are describing our languages to an audience that is unfamiliar with them and wants to understand quickly. We want to standardize our description so that other people can quickly comprehend it and give feedback. That is somewhat the case in linguistics, but as a linguist, you are not only talking to the broader linguistics community, but also to an audience of linguists who are particularly interested in a specific language, family, or aerial group, and will be familiar with the peculiar traditions of describing that language or group of languages. While I understand the interest in hewing to the standard, it's important to know that there is some flexibility and all sorts of descriptive terms and labels are used differently among different languages. It's important for reading linguistic research, but it's also important for writing descriptions because the labels you give things will be influenced by an analysis of the language at hand. I want to give an example through the lens of a part of linguistics I know fairly well. Phonetic transcription. A note, yes, I do in fact mean phonetic transcription. It is obvious that the labels you use for phonemes in a phonemic transcription will be influenced by the structure of the language. It's also pretty clear that those labels have a degree of arbitrariness. We choose which symbol is the phoneme based on an analysis of how it behaves and on standard conventions of the field. What is less obvious is this, that the symbols we use in phonetic transcriptions are informed this way as well. Uh, if we were to fully specify a phonetic transcription at the absolute unaltered surface, we just print a waveform and a spectrogram. But in linguistics, we understand that as the pure sounds are translated into phonetic categories, there has already been a perceptual filter applied. So we never make it 
perfectly detailed. Uh, this is something I've discussed on the show before, but I just wanted to make a whole short about it just to reiterate some of my thoughts. So, let's continue on. The most obvious example of this is in vowels. As I have said on the podcast before, vowels in real languages are never defined as points in the vowel space as the IPA chart would have you think. A vowel perceptually will fall into a range of values in a region of that space, determined relative to other vowels. Speakers actually have to compare uh, one vowel to another in the same system sometimes in order to even get the, the difference. Languages with fewer vowels will have a wider margin of error. Uh, as an Arabic speaker's e-vowel may fall down in the region of English i or even a. In some cases, the distinctions may be important, but in many cases, we don't bother with that sort of fiddliness. So, for an example, consider the English u vowel, the high back vowel. In many dialects of English, this vowel is fronted. For some speakers, it is so front, far front that it's in the same region as the, the E vowel. It's like right on top of E. I've seen this in um, vowel charts based on actual recordings where someone's uh, U vowel is actually is almost like E. It's like right on top of the E vowel. You would think that we would sometimes tra transcribe it as the the central uh, u, the bard bard u, or even as the front e, which we write with a y in IPA, right? But the fact is that even in relatively narrow transcriptions, you almost never see that. The reason for that is that the fronting of u isn't really phonological. There aren't really phonological rules governing it. It's not strictly conditioned by, you know, some other sound causes the, the U to become U to, U to become E. And it doesn't have an effect on other sounds. It just seems to happen on the phonetic level without the higher level processing of phonology. Uh, so unless we are specifically talking about this phenomenon, we don't worry about it so much to transcribe it. We just transcribe it as the U, you know, Latin letter U is U. Uh, linguists can also disagree on a transcription or transcribe it differently depending on their perspective. For example, if I'm going by, by ear, I would phonetically transcribe the vowel in Mandarin Chinese Zhong as a mid-back vowel, the O vowel, you know, the just, but that we write with the Latin letter O, or maybe the open O, the all vowel. Sanduan Mu instead transcribes it as U, Latin letter U. And I have also seen U, the, the Upsilon, that's um, the, like the book vowel, U. Duan Mu's justification is that it is underlyingly U, and I won't get into the reasoning there. I do kind of agree with that. I don't know if my lack of native intuition gets in the way or causes me to draw a different conclusion, but I might differ from him and say that, uh, yeah, it's underlyingly that, but it seems like there's a, uh, 
like a phonological rule that's causing the lowering. So that's one reason that I might transcribe it differently. But that's the idea is that, you know, sometimes even your supposed surface level transcription is being influenced by how you would analyze the language. Now, vowels are notoriously fuzzy. Um, Tonal systems are even more so. I would not really want to give a confident transcription of, of a tone on any level without figuring out the tonal system first. Because what sounds like a high tone in isolation in one language might be like a, a high mid tone or a rising tone in another language. It's they're, they're really relative to each other. So, so I would not be wanting to do that. And, you know, vowels are kind of relative to each other too. But even consonants can have these features that we're not always transcribing. For instance, in English, um, the, the, the consonant sh written with the long S is almost always rounded. Just if you're, if you are a native English speaker, just make a shushing sound and you'll see it. The, just, you go, go sh and you, you will automatically round your lips and you can say all kinds of words, uh, ship, shoot, shine, and you will notice that you have a little bit of lip, lip rounding. It's like a tiny bit labialized. But linguists never transcribe it with a rounding diacritic because it's not affected by any rule and it doesn't condition any rule. So it's always rounded. It's, it may be rounded to different degrees in, in different environments, but it's always a little bit rounded. And that rounding does not cause vowels to round. It doesn't cause labialization of, of other consonants or anything. It's just the, the we have the sh is a little bit rounded, and it doesn't really seem to affect anything else. Uh, the theory is that the lip rounding enhances the distinction between s and sh. So we just add that when we're, we're doing the... F- phonetic part of of our speech processing and we just add that to say we just add that as an enhancement on the distinction to keep those sounds apart uh finally we can even disagree about a sequence of sounds uh what is the rhyme of in her is it a syllabic r or is it a roticized schwa or is it a sequence of schwa and and the english r Er, it depends in part on how you think English works. Uh, do you think that uh, the, the the schwa is deleted and we have a syllabic R? Or do you think that there's actually a schwa there and the R is getting stuck onto it in and, and merging with it? Or do you think that there is still phonetically like a sequence of the, the uh and the er that you can you can discern somewhere. Different linguists actually use these different transcriptions based on uh, what they're doing. And I'm not even getting into the fact that uh, li- linguists studying English often leave the R right side up. I would not recommend conlangers do that if it's actually the approximate R. You, you want to do the, the rotated one because we want to know exactly what you mean. But uh, another example of something like this, I have seen many times, well, several times, 
recently, uh, a question something to the effect of what the difference is between a palatalized consonant and a sequence of a consonant plus y. So if you have like a syllable kya, kya, uh, like how are you supposed to tell if you're supposed to transcribe that as k with the superscript j, uh, and ah, uh, or k with just a regular j and ah, uh, right? The, getting the palatalized consonant versus the yeah. And the fact is, the difference is mainly phonology. Is that sort of glide a property of the consonant, or is it its own vowel? Uh, now, the glide will often be phonetically shorter if we're talking about palatalization. But that's sort of a side effect of that phonology is that, okay, if it's a palatalized consonant and you have this, this yeah off glide of the consonant, then it's going to be a little, it's speakers will tend to make it a little shorter than they would a full glide coming after the consonant. Although it's not, uh, I don't, think languages generally actually distinguish between um, palatalized consonant and consonant plus glide. But uh, the bottom line here is how you transcribe it really depends a lot on the phonology. Is um, like, how does this behave? Like, are these, are these things separable maybe? Um, does the palatalization of the consonant affect things before it. That would be a big clue that this is like a property of the consonant and not, un, and not actually the vowel. Is there things where this glide, glide comes after the consonant at the beginning of a word of a, of a syllable, but before the consonant at the end of a syllable, but otherwise those act like the same sounds that would indicate that maybe this is palatalization that's being realized different ways. There's lots of um, sort of things about the language that will sort of lead in the, the direction. There's a lot of things you, you consider, but the, the main thing is like, you know, the difference is, is phonological, even though you're, you've got to try to do that in a, a phonetic transcription. So there are a couple of takeaways that I want con language to come away with here. First is that when reading linguistic descriptions of languages, look for descriptions of the sounds if you want an accurate view of the phonology and the phonetics. The transcriptions will only go so far. Even if the linguists are using standard IPA, which not all do, not all even use IPA at all. They use a different transcription system. Their use of it will be informed by their theories and by traditions in describing that language or the language family. Also understand that just because something is in square brackets, that doesn't mean that it represents precisely what comes out of a speaker's mouth. It's still filtered. It's still sort of what phonetic category is perceived. And there are a lot of levels from the ultimate underlying form step-by-step step to the surface representation. So, uh, like, you you will see phonologists write a description and never even use the slashes 
because it's the there's no there at a certain point it's there's not much use in trying to like differentiate like how broad or narrow you're being just purely based on the uh the the bracket and slash convention second thing yes use standard ipa values but understand that ipa is just a tool and an imperfect one don't stress about finding exactly the right symbol adding lots of diacritics and whatnot transcribe what you need to transcribe and write up a description of how things are pronounced this basic principle follows for other parts of your grammar uh, need to name your cases find labels that fit well enough and then give detailed descriptions of their uses syntax you can try some high level typological labels but you need to also give example sentences and explain how they're working. In all these cases, the labels are just to give you a shorthand. The real work is in the prose description. Uh, I hope that helps people out. I was just, you know, it was just something that came up to my mind and I thought I would rant about it a little bit and see if um, this helps people. Uh, big thing is relax about how you label things including when you're trying to write transcriptions. It's just, you just got to get it so that we will understand it once we've read your transcription. You choose the labels such that once we've read your description, we can pretty easily, like, piece together what, what things are, what things sound like. So, thank you all for listening. Next month, I should actually have a full episode. I was planning on just doing shorts because, uh, I'm in crunch time finishing my dissertation, but um, William had a good idea for a full episode, and I think we can do that in April and um, get that out in May, and then uh, we will be just fine with that. So, um, in the meantime, write up your descriptions, get things all worked out, don't stress about being too precise in labeling. And I'm going to say happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our site was designed by Bianca Richards. And our theme music is by Null Device. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. You are free to use our show for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to Conlangery Podcast and you use a similar Creative Commons license. Conlangery is supported by our listeners. Please visit patreon.com slash conlangery to give your support. Thank you.